Did you know that most vitamin D3 supplements come from sheep's wool? I'm Kat, founder of Ritual. We're making traceability the new standard for the supplement industry. When I was pregnant, I couldn't find a multivitamin I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested, and clean label project certified. Oh, and our vitamin D3? It comes from sustainably harvested lichen from England, not sheep. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com slash podcast. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? The Night Stalker. This is what they decided to call him. A sensational title, typical of this place. This golden state of sunshine, success, and beauty. This state of broken dreams, of nomads come to die. Everything in California, it seems, is a facade. A big fat fucking lie. But he'd show them. He'd show them that just like the other rare gems from parts unknown, small places with no business producing talent, places that on occasion spit out an anomaly who splats on the coast with a backpack and a dream and ends up on every billboard. That one in a million star, Richard Ramirez, would be the other. The Death Star. The one to take their filthy name, their dingy spotlight, and turn it on them as they slept. Ramirez is on the prowl. They have his prints now, but it'll do them no good. It is 1985. The technology is not yet in place to match his prints to previous crimes. They will need to catch him in order to do so. And he knows that, yes, someday they will. But not before he's had his fun. He cruises the streets of L.A. in a stolen Toyota, scanning for a lone female, and soon spots Marie Hernandez on the freeway driving back home after having dinner with her boyfriend. He inconspicuously tails her gold Camaro to Rosemead and into the parking lot of her apartment complex. A sign out front reads, Village Lane. Marie shares her apartment with a roommate, Dale Okazaki, and her car is already parked outside. Ramirez follows Maria as she walks through the garage to the door to her unit, an auto light switching on as they do so. Marie needs to open two locks to get into her unit. She twists her key to release the first, then hears footsteps approaching. She turns to see a man dressed all in black, stalking towards her, gun in hand, pointing it between her eyes. Marie screams out, then the lights in the garage shut off. Ramirez panics and shoots as Marie instinctively raises her arm. The bullet is deflected by the keys in her hand. Ramirez sees the woman drop in the flash and decides that she's dead, or at least mortally injured. He then steps over the woman and breaks down the door to the unit, 
planning on making the most of the situation, whether that be killing another in the apartment or stealing something worth selling. Marie's roommate, Dale, hides under the kitchen table when the gunshots ring out. Ramirez immediately spots her movement when he enters and stands still, waiting for her to reemerge. Marie, meanwhile, quietly rises from the concrete and crawls from the garage for help. Dale Okazaki waits until she's certain the man has left and then pokes her head out over the table. Ramirez lets the shock set in of seeing him there, then shoots her in the forehead, killing the innocent 34-year-old instantly. He then turns to the door and checks on his other victim. She's gone. And a few moments later, so is he. Ramirez spots Marie Hernandez sobbing out front as he enters his vehicle. He raises his gun but doesn't shoot. This scene is hot enough already. He drives off, realizing too late that he's lost his ACDC baseball cap. He considers going back in to retrieve it, but then a neighbor comes out and shouts, It's time to go. He's furious with himself and motivated to get one right. He soon spots a 30-year-old law student, Veronica Yu, traveling on the San Bernardino Highway towards the Monterey Park exit. When Veronica realizes the man in the car behind her is aggressively following her, she drives around looking for a police car. Not finding one, she soon decides to let him pass and quickly pulls over to the curb. Ramirez doesn't have time to stop, so slowly continues driving, eyes glued to his rear view. He's amazed when the vehicle pulls back out onto the road. The hunter has become the hunted, it seems. A vicious grin spreads across his face. After a block, Ramirez stops at a red light, exits his vehicle, and strides towards Veronica Yu, the gun poking out of his waistband. Across the street, unbeknownst to Richard, a couple are observing the whole scene from their parked white Ford pickup. Veronica rolls down her window. She's more angry than afraid. She demands to know why Ramirez had been following her. He responds that he thought he knew her, likely a little shocked by this display of bravery. Veronica calls him a liar and says she has his plate and is going to call the police. This doesn't go over well. Ramirez tries to drive her door, but it's locked. He then reaches in through the open window and attempts to yank the woman out. Veronica begins to scream, and Ramirez relents. He then hops over the hood of the car and opens the passenger side door, which had not been locked. He then pulls out the twenty-two and shoots Veronica under her right arm. She screams out and unlocks her door, attempting to flee. Ramirez fires again, this time hitting her in the lower back. Veronica manages to get out of the car and drag herself into the street, bleeding and screaming for help. Ramirez cackles, calls her a bitch, then drives off. He hits the freeway, full of adrenaline, and soon turns off at a random exit and ditches the car. He then calmly walks to a bus terminal and buys a ticket back to downtown L.A., where he hopes to score. Veronica Yu, unfortunately, dies from her injuries. There are witnesses to both murders committed so clumsily by Ramirez on this night, and soon a sketch is being circulated throughout the media. Fortunately for Ramirez, the sketch looks like the headshot of an aging actor applying for the role of garbage man or janitor in a B-movie. There's no threat from the sketch that he'll be caught. Even though he did drop his ACDC cap, I'd be thunderstruck if anyone connected Ramirez to this sketch. The hat was something that would have been recognizable to acquaintances as having always been worn by Richie the Thief. But the crowd he occasionally interacted with weren't interested in speaking to police. Even if the sketch somehow rang a hell's bell, which, as I've said, would be highly unlikely, there was a better chance of Barry Manilow taking the fall as a result of that depiction. It really does look like uh, Barry Manilow, after too much fun at the Copacabana. 
in my opinion. Check it out. Meanwhile, Ramirez is stunned that he was able to get away with such a sloppy night of murder. He reasons that Satan was protecting him, and would continue to do so as long as he was a good disciple and showed no mercy. He had grandiose goals of one day owning a mansion where he could set up a torture and murder dungeon. He fantasized about documenting his assaults and making his fortune selling snuff films. Just a small town kid with big nightmares. March 26, 1985. Ramirez heads out to the freeways again in another stolen Toyota, which is not sponsored by the show. He just preferred stealing Toyotas. I assume that they are, uh, they're easy to steal. He recalls a nice house in Whittier that he'd robbed the year before, so he heads there. At 2 a.m., Ramirez turns off the headlights and kills the engine to roll quietly in front of 64-year-old Vincent and 44-year-old Maxine Zazera's house, a one-story brick home surrounded by fruit trees. He can see that the lights are on in the living room and providing a blinding glow in the interior of the bay window. Ramirez spots Vincent asleep on the couch with the TV on. Vincent owned two pizza restaurants and was a retired accountant. He was enjoying some well-deserved downtime. Ramirez creeps around the house, looking into windows, and finally observes Maxine asleep in a bedroom. However, all the windows are locked. Eventually, with ebbing patience, he discovers a smaller, less secure window in the back of the house, and manages to access it by using an empty can from the backyard to get to the window, which is too high for him. He then pries open the screen, pushes open the window, and slides his slender frame noiselessly through. He finds himself, in the laundry room. Ramirez slips off his shoes and takes out his twenty-two. He then approaches Vincent silently and shoots him dead, right above his left ear as he sleeps, just like Uncle Miguel had taught him. The gunshot wakes up the recently widowed Maxine and Ramirez marches into the bedroom, aiming the gun at her. Shut up, bitch. Don't look at me. Where's the money? The woman is frightened mute. Ramirez beats on her, turns her on her stomach, and ties her hands together with a necktie he snatches from a closet. He gags her, then rips out the phone lines, and ransacks the house for valuables. Maxine was a lawyer, carried a gun, and had a sinking feeling that this intruder was going to kill her. Her forty-five was in her purse, but she knew Vincent kept a shotgun under the bed. While Ramirez was in the living room, stuffing whatever looked good into a pillowcase, Maxine frees her hands, rolls off the bed, and finds the shotgun. She then walks into the living room, and aims it at her husband's killer, and pulls the trigger. Ramirez looks up when he hears the dry snap of the hammer landing on thin air. Maxine then remembers too late that Vincent had removed the shells in anticipation of their grandchildren visiting. Ramirez shoots her three times, then beats and kicks the poor woman to death. Not yet satisfied, he retrieves a ten-inch knife from the kitchen and attempts to cut her heart out, but is unable to get past the rib cage. He carves an inverted cross into her chest to suffice, then decides to do one better. He cuts off her eyelids, pries out the eyes, and places them in a jewelry box. He considers raping the body, but is still too enraged to do anything but mutilate. He stabs the corpse's stomach, throat, and genitals. He then leaves the house taking the shotgun with him, but left Maxine's forty-five near her body. Maybe in some ridiculous attempt to make it look like she did all this, but you need to, you know... There's a few things that need to be explained on, on her end, what happened to her. He leaves through the front door, covered in blood. He hops into the car, puts the shotgun between his legs, and drives out to the freeway. After a few blocks, he notices a police car behind him. This, surely, had to be the end of the road, he thought. But he had an ace up his sleeve, 
an ace he'd forgotten he'd even placed on the back of the vehicle in the form of a bumper sticker, which read, Co-out. America. Love it or leave it. Ramirez had placed the bumper sticker there, knowing full well that most police officers are patriots, and hoping that in the event of this exact situation, it would deter them from pulling him over. The trick worked. The cruiser soon turns down a side street, and Ramirez sends a prayer of thanks to the earth, right past the shotgun between his legs and his bloody black pants. His brand new white sneakers, his avias, have been spared. A small miracle. He soon dumps the vehicle, and after a visit with a sex worker, um, a lady of the night, he hops a bus home, sneaking peeks down into the jewelry box as the streetlights strobe over him, gazing down fascinated, into the eyes of the one who should have been his executioner. Hail Satan. The Zazera's bodies were discovered the following morning by the manager of one of their restaurants. He went over every night to drop off the receipts for the day. He had come by the night before and saw that the front door was slightly ajar. He had called out, knocked, and got no answer. He left the money in a brown paper bag in the mail slot. He'd come back the next day, worried even more when he saw the door still in the same position. He decided to go and get another worker from the pizzeria, and they walked into the house together, soon finding Vincent's body in the living room. They walked right back out and called the police. Behind the house, investigators discovered the discarded window screen and a compound can beneath an open window. The can has a clear footprint on it. They find more footprints encircling the house. CSI makes plaster casts of the prints. They learn from this that the killer was wearing size 11 and a half Avia sneakers. The medical examiner's people confirm that Maxine's eyes have been taken, which they knew was a rare criminal occurrence, the work of a paranoid. They found the money from the pizza place still in the mail slot along with the Zazera's other mail. A safe and other valuables had not been taken, ruling out an inside job. After some good old-fashioned police work, it was discovered that the brand of sneaker worn by the killer, Avia, and the type were only recently on the market. In fact, it was found that the killer was wearing a stylish shoe that only one person currently owned in this area. He had paid with cash for the sneakers, and the store owner could not recall who had bought these shoes. But this still was a big break and information that was to be guarded and kept from the public. April 14, 1985. Ramirez is staying in the infamous Cecil Hotel, the same hotel where in 2013, Elisa Lamb will be found in a water tank on the roof after security cameras capture her fleeing in terror from something. Ramirez was enjoying some downtime from murder. He went to a pool hall and then to a porn cinema. Ramirez enjoyed horror movies the Texas Chainsaw Massacre being his favorite. He was a bookworm and a fan of true crime. Truman Capote's In Cold Blood topped his list of recommended reading. His favorite song was ACDC's Night Prowler, which he liked to think Satan had inspired the band to write, just for him. He now had wholly embraced the idea that he would go on a killing spree to make himself infamous. He got rid of the twenty-two, which he figured was hot, and acquired a new silver twenty-two automatic. He stuck to burglarizing communities right near the freeway for easy escape. He bought a police scanner, which he took with him when he stole a car and cruised L.A., looking for potential victims. Eventually, he finds a situation of which is ripe for a massacre, and soon cuts the engine, the lights, and comes rolling to a stop in front of a house on Trumbauer Avenue in Monterey Park. He was seen there by Lonnie Dempster, who delivered newspapers to stores and had a second job as a security guard. She noted that he had acted suspiciously when she looked at him. He stared right back and had, quote, Scary eyes. Ramirez waits until the woman moves on. 
then confidently exits the stolen car and walks casually up to the house of William Doy, 66, and his disabled wife, Lillian, 56. Bill had recently retired, and the day before, put a down payment on a new Ford van. Their plan for retirement was to travel the states together. Lillian had suffered a stroke in 1983 and needed a wheelchair to get around. She had difficulty speaking. They had one daughter, Linda, and one granddaughter who they doted on. Bill, who was a California native of Japanese ancestry, enjoyed taking his grandchild to Japanese traditional festivals and the beach whenever possible. It's pitch dark when Ramirez climbs into the happy home through a window. He prays to Satan as he lands softly on the tiles of the bathroom. Satan, this, what I, your humble servant, am about to do, I do for you. He walks silently past Lillian's room, sees that she is asleep, and spots the wheelchair. Then he walks to Bill's room, raising the gun and tripping over something on the floor, a rare misstep. This noise wakes Bill up, and he reaches for the 9mm he keeps in the nightstand. Ramirez shoots Bill in the throat, and the recent retiree falls out of bed, clutching the wound and gasping for air. Ramirez tries to shoot him again, but his gun is jammed. Bill can't speak through the injury to his throat and mouth, but the gunshot wakes Lillian up regardless. She's helpless and can't move from her bed. Ramirez beats and kicks Bill until he passes out, then grabs Bill's gun and heads to Lillian's room. She screams when the intruder enters and is immediately slapped into silence and told that she's a bitch. Ramirez secures her hands with thumb cuffs, a nasty thing to do. Then he searches the house for valuables. Bill comes too, and Ramirez knocks him out again. He goes back to Lillian and rapes her, warning her not to look at him as he does so. When he's finished, he smiles his rotten grin of broken and decaying teeth, then kisses Lillian on her tear-streaked cheek, takes his loot, cuts one of the phone wires to the house not realizing there are two, and leaves. Bill snaps awake and stumbles to see the state his wife is in. She is sobbing and babbling incoherently. He's dying, but manages to call 911 and ask for help before passing out again. The LA 911 system had the capability to show where the call came from at this time, so the operator sent police, firefighters, and an ambulance to the location. Firefighters were first at the house. They walked in and saw Lillian, her thumbs clamped in cuffs. She had dragged herself to the doorway. She pointed at Bill, unconscious, sitting by the phone covered in blood. The house had been ransacked. Police and medics soon arrived. Lillian and Bill are soon rushed to the hospital. Lillian's disability prevented her from answering many questions, but finally, she manages to calm down enough to describe a tall man in black with a gun and bad teeth. Bill Doy passes away shortly after arriving at the hospital. Detectives from Monterey Park's Robbery Homicide Unit arrive and find an 11.5-size avia footprint in the mud in front of the Doy residence, and two others under Lillian's bedroom window. May 29, 1985, 11.40 p.m. Ramirez breaks into the home of Mabel Bell, 83, a home she shared with her disabled, slightly younger sister, Nettie Lang, 81. Mabel had moved to L.A. from Oklahoma 15 years earlier and usually left the front door open, as was the habit when she was growing up. Her house was in Monrovia, and it stood alone at the top of North Alta Vista Road. Mabel was strong and in good health and still drove her car. She was very independent. She had been widowed at a young age and had worked hard to support her two children, and now had 12 grandchildren. Mabel had taken her sister Nettie in two years earlier, so she would not go to an institution, as a result of her deteriorating mental fitness. 
Ramirez was stalking in style, having recently stolen a gray Mercedes sedan. He drove up North Alta Vista and came to Mabel's house. He drove past it and realized it was the only house on the road, so he circled back. He slipped on his gloves and crept unseen through the dark to the front door, which was open. He scans the house with a flashlight, taking quick note of where the bedrooms are situated, and calculates that there are few valuables. He heads to the kitchen, rifling through the knives but eventually settling on a hammer. He'd at least make this break-in worthwhile. He creeps into Nettie's room, eases his way up to her bedside, then smashes her over the head with the hammer. He then rips a clock from the bedside table and uses the cord to tie her hands. The clock, later, will be found to be frozen at six minutes past midnight. He then left his elderly victim to gasp and bleed, stepping in the blood in the face of the clock and leaving yet another of his signature footprints. Ramirez walks softly into Mabel's room, standing over his sleeping form. He says a prayer to Satan and then hits her in the head with a hammer. Mabel wakes up, screaming, and he orders her to shut up, calling the old lady a bitch as was his introductory insult to most he woke up with a blunt object in the night and then calmly asks where the valuables are. Mabel manages to whisper that she has no jewelry and is smashed again in the head with a hammer as a result. The bludgeoned elderly woman has suffered severe brain damage but is still alive. Ramirez turns on the lights and duct tapes Mabel's ankles. He rips the cord from her bedside clock, strips the edges, plugs the cord back in, and uses the other end of the exposed wire to begin shocking Mabel. Mabel's skull is split open and her brain protrudes. He burns her skin with exposed wire for a while, but she's not much fun in this state. He soon tires of the torture and heads back to Nettie's room, where the helpless old woman lies moaning on her bed. This turns Richard on, and he decides to viciously rape her. Ramirez then decorates the scene, using lipstick. He draws a pentagram on Nettie's left thigh and one on the wall above her head. He draws another pentagram on the door to Mabel's bedroom. Then he rummages through the kitchen, eats a banana, drinks a Coke and a Mountain Dew, takes a piss without lifting the seat or bothering to flush, and leaves the two old women to die. The very next night, as Mabel and Nettie cling to life in their ransacked residence, floating in and out of consciousness, Ramirez heads out hunting again. He's driving the same car, and he cruises to Burbank, carrying a pair of handcuffs and the Silver twenty-two. Earlier in the day, he had come upon books for the taking outside of a downtown Goodwill. He snatched up a few and lined his back seat with them, thinking it would stop bullets if the police were shooting at him. He's clearly out of his mind, attempting to think ahead, but with a brain that's malfunctioning. He's entered strange territory, a realm of depravity not many have ever experienced. The only way to keep this high alive is to continue wreaking havoc. At 3.57 a.m., he stops on North Avon Street and walks boldly up to a promising-looking house. Its windows and doors are locked, but he discovers a dog door, which he wiggles in through far enough to reach and unlock the door from the inside. Ramirez listens for a dog, but hears none. He produces a pen light to help navigate his way to 42-year-old Carol Kyle's bedroom. He shines the light on her face and shouts for her to wake up. She is blinded and confused, with the light in her eyes. He puts a gun to her head and asks if anyone else is in the house. Carol reluctantly shares that yes, her 11-year-old son is sleeping. Ramirez forces Carol to lead him to her son's room, but does not trust her to open the door. Instead, he makes her lie flat on the floor before he bursts in and pounces on the sleeping boy, putting a gun to his head. Carol comes flying into the room and throws herself between Ramirez and her sobbing son. Ramirez overpowers the irate mother and throws her on the bed beside her child and cuffs them together. He then leads the two to a hallway closet 
and closes them in it, warning them not to fucking move. Ramirez then ransacks the house. He soon returns and forces Carol to the bed. Carol lets it slip that she also has a daughter and that she was sleeping at a friend's and would not be back until morning. Ramirez teases that maybe he'll wait for her. He's in a playful mood. The urge to kill isn't with him this night, and he honestly considers letting the mother and son live. He then leads her to the bed, ties her hands behind her back with pantyhose, covers her head with a pillow, and keeps looking for valuables. Then, without warning, he is on her, tearing off her nightgown and panties, raping her as her helpless son tries to disappear in the closet. Carol, who did survive this attack, and who stole glances at her attacker, later shared, quote, The look in his eyes was absolutely demonic. Never had I seen eyes like this on a human being. Ramirez then ransacked the home some more and returned to rape her again in every way possible. Her pain made him enjoy it more, but she manages to keep her attacker from becoming too upset with her by playing along to a degree. Ramirez is quite pleased with the rape and casually has a drink in the kitchen with his victim once he's satisfied, complimenting that she wasn't bad in bed for her age. He asked her how to get to the freeway and it seemed he thought he was in Glendale, but he was, in fact, in North Avon. He tells Carol she's lucky. He's going to let her live. She's lucky because he's killed lots of other people. He again warns her not to look at him, or he will cut out her eyes. Then he grabs her another gown to cover herself, pulls her son from the closet, and cuffs them both to the headboard. Ramirez is in a generous mood, so he places the cuff key on the mantle, suggesting Carol's daughter be shown it to free them when she gets home, and again teasing that maybe he'll just wait around for her. <laughs> Ramirez, who now was allowing his face to be seen, as he had been won over by this little family, orders the two to tell police he was wearing a mask and say that they didn't know his face. He warns that if they disobey, he would have his friends come by, and they weren't as kind as he. Later, once Carol and her son are free again, a sketch artist sits with Carol, but she fails to come up with enough detail to produce anything worth distributing to the media. I don't blame her. June 1st, 1985. Handyman and landscaper Carlos Valenzuela stops by Mabel Bell's house to check on Mabel and Nettie. Carlos took care of the pool and garden and was growing concerned that he had not been able to reach Mabel. He had been twice already, once on May 30th and again on the 31st. It is now June 1st and he rings the door but again no one answers. This time he notices the newspapers are piling up, so he enters the house to check on the sisters. He finds Nettie in a horrible state and runs from the house then drives to the nearest neighbors to call 911. Firefighters arrive first and discover this. Mabel is still alive, but comatose. Living brain matter protrudes from the left side of her head. Nettie is also comatose. The tight bindings around her wrist have made her hands swell and turn black. In fact, this was so bad that the flesh on the backs of her hands had split. Medics put IVs on both and transport them to hospital. There, doctors note that Nettie has been sexually assaulted. They also note the pentagram drawn on her thigh with lipstick. Detectives from the Sheriff's Homicide Department were sent to the home. They found two half-eaten bananas and empty cans of Coke and Mountain Dew. They note a footprint on the face of Nettie's clock, but do not bother to identify the model of the shoe. Meanwhile, the two elderly sisters lay comatose in hospital, miraculously alive after days spent suffering from the vicious attack. The secrets of what had happened to them, buried deep in their scrambled minds. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go. 
and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature, built-in true accent, gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value, especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Today. All right, everybody. Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here in I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com. June 3rd, 1985. After a couple days of rest and fencing stolen goods, Ramirez is back at it. He soon selects the Pico Rivera house of John and Susan Rodriguez, not realizing it was located only half a mile from the Zazera house, where he'd nearly been shot by a woman whose eyes he still kept, drying in a jewelry box. The light above the door was out, and that attracted him. After checking the front door and windows, he found the dining room window unlocked. He removes the screen, the window is stuck half open with caked paint. He manages to force it open, only to hear Susan calling out to John, Did you just open a window? Then Ramirez hears the sound of a man's voice, and the couple are discussing what the sound might be. Ramirez, who completely relied on the element of surprise and on people being asleep, turned around and left, but he left behind an avia's shoe footprint. John Rodriguez, the homeowner, was a sheriff's deputy. He calls his buddies to investigate the attempted break-in, and they soon find the footprint under the window. Ramirez drives on, hunting this same night, but did not find a suitable house. Come morning, he tried to abduct a girl in Eagle Rock, L.A., but she screamed and got away. A neighbor heard and called 911. 
As Richard raced back to the highway, he was stopped by an LAPD motorcycle officer. He quickly dumps the gun and half an ounce of weed on the shoulder, and the officer does not notice. However, the car he's driving, a blue Toyota, is stolen and already reported as being the vehicle involved in an attempted abduction. The officer calls in the plate. Over the radio, the be on the lookout, the bolo, crackles loudly. This car is wanted for the abduction attempt of a young girl. Ramirez, who is tracing a pentagram in the dust on the hood of the Toyota, hears the bolo and sprints from the scene, over a fence, into a backyard and away. Embarrassed, the officer downplays the incident and swiftly has the vehicle impounded. The following day, June 4th, 1985, officers are called to a homicide scene in Arcadia. Patty Elaine Higgins, 28, a school teacher, was discovered murdered after she didn't show up for work. The school asked a neighbor to check in on her. There was a broken window at the back, and the back door was ajar. This was a violent, spur-of-the-moment crime. Patty is found viciously murdered on the bathroom floor. She has stab and slash wounds to her neck, bruises on her at her knees, and her panties are rolled down in the back. She had been sodomized while on her hands and knees. No gun was used, and there was no avia footprint. July 2nd, 1985. The middle of one of the hottest summers in a hundred years. Ramirez goes back on the prowl. He decides to return to Arcadia, figuring police wouldn't expect him to go back there so soon. He parks two blocks from the freeway, then looks for the right house on foot. He soon breaks into 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon's house through a front window. He smashes a heavy vase on her head as she sleeps, then beats her unconscious. He then stabs and slashes her throat with a 10-inch knife he gets from the kitchen, then ransacks the house and leaves. Mary had given her next-door neighbors a key for emergencies. The next morning, when they see the screen on the lawn and that her paper hadn't been picked up, the neighbors come in through the front door. When they see the ransacked house, they flee and call police. The officers come in and find the body, secure the scene, and call in sheriff's homicide. The injuries to Mary and Patty's necks are identical. In this scene, there are footprints on the new carpet. The size and general shape are like those from the Zazera murder scene. Later, a small piece of bloody tissue paper is found on the floor. CSI examines it and finds that the killer had stepped on it, transferring into it the distinct pattern from an avia sneaker. For the first time, it's agreed that maybe all the crimes mentioned to this point were the work of the same maniac. When they return to the station, they learn that a print from Mabel Bell's carpet also came back as matching a size 11.5 Avia shoe. With this, it was finally decided to launch a proper task force. July 4th, 1985. Ramirez goes out again, goes to Arcadia, where despite the heat, every door and window is now sealed tight, barricaded in some. He prowls around backyards, but soon hears in a scanner that a citizen has called in to report him, and now police are on the alert. Still, he keeps driving around Arcadia, eventually parking on Arno Drive in Sierra Madre. He walks to a house in the corner and soon finds that the back door is locked, but the front is open. The house belongs to Steve Bennett and his wife. They lived there with their two children, Whitney, 16, and James, 18. That night, they had had another couple staying over. Richard realizes right away that there's money in this house and goes back to his car to get a tire iron. On his way back to the house, a police cruiser passes by and he prays to Satan to cloak him. He is not spotted in the darkness of the Bennett front lawn and is soon breaking into 16-year-old Whitney's window. He clamps his hand over her mouth before she can scream and then hits her ten times with a tire iron. Then he creeps into the kitchen to get a knife but can't find one he likes, so he heads back to Whitney. He wants to rape her, but in case she comes to and screams, he decides to kill her first. He kneels on her chest 
and strangles her with the cord from the nearby phone. But suddenly sparks erupt from the cord. He sees a blue mist leave her body and thinks it's her soul. Then she breathes in and it shoots back into her. Richard's spooked. He believes something supernatural is happening. He dives back out the window and drives away. After giving it thought, he figures out the power of Christ to save the girl. This puts him in a foul mood. He wonders if this intervention signifies that the protection of Satan is waning. At 5.45 a.m., Whitney Bennett wakes up with a horrible headache, and she's covered in blood. She has no recollection of the attack. Both her eyes are swollen shut, and her head is twice its normal size. She's naked. Her terrified parents call police when she stumbles into their room. Detectives find no avia size 11.5 prints, and their killer had never used a tire iron before, but the brutality told them it was likely the same perp. Whitney required 478 stitches to her scalp, but she lives. Then, the CSI find an avia waffle print in blood on Whitney's comforter. July 7th, 1985. Ramirez cruises through Arcadia and Glendale before returning to Monterey Park shortly after 9 p.m. He knows people will be on alert, but he was certain now of Satan's protection, and he didn't have to worry. He settles on the pale yellow house of Joyce Lucille Nelson, 61. She had lived in the house since 1949, so for 36 years. She had been divorced for 21 years and lived there alone, now that her two sons were grown and had children of their own. She was about to retire from an envelope company where she spent 33 years and planned to spend retirement golfing. She knew about the killer, and her son had asked her to put bars in her windows, but she refused to be a prisoner in her own home. Ramirez picked the house because a large oak tree growing from the sidewalk blocked it from streetlights and provided darkness. He got in through a window, leaving footprints underneath. Footprints he still was unaware were connecting him and his crimes together. He took the screen to the backyard to avoid attracting attention. He found Joyce asleep on the couch in the living room and woke her up after putting his gun to her head. He told her not to look at him. She demanded he leave. This infuriates Ramirez and he beats her to death. He leaves her for dead on the bathroom floor. He had kicked her with such force that the familiar avia waffle pattern was clearly imprinted on her face. He ransacks the house and leaves through the front door. Then he drives away, looking for another house. At 3 a.m., he finds one in Monterey Park. He did not think Joyce's murder would have been noted yet, so figured it was safe. He went to the house of Sophie Dickman, 63, a psychiatric nurse. Once again, Richard gained access through a dog door. He woke Sophie up rushing at her from her bedroom door, instructing her to shut up and not look at him. He handcuffs her and drags her to the bathroom. She knew who he was immediately, and she also had some experience with psychopaths from her work. She sensed he needed to feel in control and would lash out if she didn't give it to him. He dragged her back to the bedroom and tried to sodomize her, but he could not get an erection, maybe as a result of the way she was speaking to him. He then cuffed her to the bed and asked her about more valuables. He ransacked the house looking for them and made her swear to Satan she didn't have any more once he found them. He tried to rape her again and failed. Then he left, warning her that he knew where she lived. He then drove to meet his fence to sell the goods, dumped the car, and got the bus back to downtown Los Angeles. When the stalker leaves, Sophie tries to break the cuffs. When she can't, she drags the bed to the window and screams out for her next-door neighbor, Linda Arthur, who was an L.A. Sheriff's deputy and had coincidentally worked on one of Ramirez's crime scenes. Officer Arthur was good friends with one of the lead detectives in what was now known as the Valley Intruder case. Linda came over and called 911. Joyce told her that she thought the man was a Valley Intruder. Avia footprints were soon found. 
The task force by this point had learned that only 1,354 pairs of the Avia sneaker had been made, and only six pairs were sold in LA. Of those six pairs, only one was size 11 and a half. This meant that they were, for certain, dealing with one man, a serial killer. Then, LAPD handed to the sheriff's office the impounded vehicle Ramirez had escaped justice for stealing. There had been whispers throughout the department that the man who escaped may have been the Valley intruder. Unfortunately, the vehicle in question had been sitting in the sun in a police car lot for months. Any prints had been burned off by the intense heat. However, there was a wallet in the car. No ID, but a dentist appointment card was recovered. It was known by this point that the Valley intruder had terrible teeth. The appointment had been made under the name of Richard Menya with Dr. Peter Lung. Dr. Lung told the police that his patient had abscesses and would be returning. The appointment, which Richard showed up for, was on July 3rd, weeks after his stolen vehicle had been impounded. They realized they could have nabbed this possible suspect had things come together as quick as they should have. Now they staked out the dentist's office, hoping he would return. Dr. Lung told them Richard would be in a lot of pain and would likely have to seek medical attention. Soon. July 17, 1985, 83-year-old Mabel Bell, sister of Nettie, who had spent two days suffering in her home following the vicious attack by Ramirez, dies of her injuries in hospital. She never regained consciousness. The cause of death was major brain trauma. Ramirez reads of this in the papers. He's enjoying the notoriety. Instead of leaving, he sets his mind on committing another more spectacular crime. He plans to cut the head off of his next victim and leave it on the lawn for the police to find. The goal now is not to get away. It is to pad his legacy. July 20th, 1985. Ramirez buys a machete in a downtown L.A. knife shop. Then he steals another Toyota, his specialty, and heads north to Glendale. He chooses Max, 68, and Leela, 66, Needing's house, one block from the freeway. It was foggy. None of the windows were open. The town was on high alert, but the Needlings had French doors. Richard cut the screen off and got in. Max and Leela were high school sweethearts and had been married for 47 years. They had three kids and 13 grandchildren. Once Ramirez was sure they were alone in the house, he woke them up roughly. Leela screamed, and Richard swung the machete and struck Max in the neck. Max yelled out and pleaded. Ramirez then realized his machete was not sharp enough to cut the man's head off. Instead, he pulls his twenty-two, points it to Max's head, and fires. The gun jams and as Max begs for his life, Richard fires again, this time killing Max. Leela is freaking out, screaming, and Richard shoots her in the face three times. He stabs at their bodies with the machete, ransacks the house, and puts what he wants in a pillowcase. He has his police scanner on him, and when he hears that shots have been reported, he leaves. He stops by his fence to deliver the goods and is covered in blood. This won't be the first time that his criminal acquaintances stop to think that maybe the man they know as Richie is the killer police are out for. Ramirez hops back in his car and drives north to Sun Valley. There had never been an attack in Sun Valley, so people were not on high alert. He breaks into the house of Chanarong and some kid Kamenath, a married couple who had immigrated to L.A. from Thailand ten years earlier. They had two kids. Richard found the mother sleeping on the couch and had her at gunpoint. He went through the house, finding the sleeping kids, and shot their sleeping father at zero range in the head while he slept and then threw a blanket over him. Ramirez then bound the mother's hands with cord from her hairdryer and took her to the bedroom and raped her right beside her husband's bloody corpse. Her eight-year-old wakes up, and Ramirez binds and gags him. 
He then rapes and sodomizes the mother right in front of her son and ransacks the house, demanding valuables. The mother eventually gives up the location of her jewelry after realizing this maniac would never leave unless he was appeased. Ramirez forces her to swear to Satan that she had given all she had, then leaves her bound by her hands and ankles on the bedroom floor. The mother manages to untie her son's hands and sends him running for help. LAPD are first on the scene, and they do not link this frenzied attack to who the media had now dubbed the Night Stalker, who had never struck that far north. It appeared at first glance to be a home invasion robbery situation. It wouldn't be long until they realized that the M.O. of this so-called valley intruder, walk-in killer, and now Night Stalker was that he had no strict M.O. The only predictable thing about him was that he struck at night, and most often while his victims were helplessly asleep. What they were searching for was a real-life nightmare. July 21st, 1985. Detectives on the Valley Intruder Case Task Force catch wind of the most recent crime scenes from the medical examiner. They drive to Glendale and Sun Valley and find Avia shoe prints around the Covenant home. After these attacks, the stalker received even more media coverage, which he loved. The pound was soon cleaned out of his dogs, locksmiths were run over with business, and everywhere trees were being felled by homeowners, worried they provided the Night Stalker cover. The cat was out of the bag. A homicidal maniac was loose on the streets of L.A. The pressure was on to catch him, and communities across California were gripped with fear and paranoia. The false leads and tips began pouring in, providing the Night Stalker plenty of room to spread out. Ramirez steals a car and drives to North Ridge in the night, where he breaks into Virginia 27 and Chris 38 Peterson's house, where they live with their five-year-old daughter. He tries the front door and windows, but they're locked. It's not long before he slips in through the sliding doors in the back. He walks into the master bedroom and cocks his gun. The noise wakes up Virginia, who asks who he is, and he tells her to shut up and shoots her in the face. She falls backwards and Chris wakes up. His wife is still alive, and she's telling him that the man has shot her with a stun gun. Chris looks over at his wife and says, No, your face is gone. The stalker then shoots Chris in the right temple and laughs, and their daughter wakes up and starts crying. Richard shoots the mother once more, and then three times at the father, missing every time. He's now out of bullets. Chris lunges at his attacker in the grapple before Ramirez runs away through the sliding doors. Chris gives chase for a moment, then heads back to help his wife, who is bleeding badly. He calls 911, but ends up herding his frightened family into his vehicle to drive to the hospital himself. Later, it was learned that Ramirez's ammunition was old and defective. The slugs that hit Chris did not penetrate the skull, and the one that hit Virginia missed her brain completely. At the Petersons, there were no prints, no ransacking, and the phones weren't disabled. All the stalker's trademarks. But he wore all black, was the right size, and called Virginia a bitch that rang familiar. The task force called together people from all jurisdictions and the FBI and informed them the stalker knew about the different jurisdictions and was taking advantage of them, so they must cooperate. Then, the lead investigator, Detective Salerno, gave the media a big quote. In this attack, the stalker showed his true colors. The message was that this big scary night stalker had run away like a coward when confronted. Ramirez read the quote and was upset by it. He then decided to take his frustrations out on another random family. August 8, 1985, Diamond Bar, California. The murder of Elias Abawath, 31, originally from Pakistan, and the assault of Sakina Abawath, 27, originally from Myanmar. They had two boys, one three, the other ten months old. Elias was a programmer and Sakina a medical technician. Ramirez shot Mr. Abawath in the head while he slept, killing him instantly. He raped and beat Sakina at gunpoint, ransacking the place and demanding she tell him where her valuables were. 
He told her her husband was alive when she asked. He decided to leave after tying up the three-year-old and cuffing Sakina to the doorknob. Again, he calls his victim a bitch and makes her swear to Satan that she had given him all her jewelry and that she wouldn't scream once he exited. After this murder, the LA Times published a profile of Detective Salerno, the man charged with the task of bringing the Night Stalker to justice. Richard was flattered that such a decorated officer was investigating him, but he also felt Southern California was getting too hot, literally and figuratively, and the only person in L.A. willing to sleep with the windows open is Richard Ramirez. Ramirez decides in San Francisco. Once there, he immediately gets the party started by beating up an old Chinese woman he followed into her building and then robbing a fancy house in the Marina District. He's let down when he finds the home is empty. Ramirez fancies himself a soldier of Satan, but it's clear by now that he's just a thief and a rapist. His murders, for the most part, come as an afterthought or at a necessity to make the thieving and raping easier. The spotlight put on him by the media, the fact that his crimes were being sensationalized by the newspapers and practically drooled over by anchormen every night, were becoming the driving force behind these crimes. Ramirez, deep down, wanted to be somebody. He felt that he had made a deal with the devil, and in this symbiotic relationship with what he'd later refer to as a parasitic media, maybe he truly had. August 18th. 1985, the murder of Peter and Barbara Pan, both in their 60s, Lakeside District. Peter was originally from Taiwan. He went to Wharton for business school and married Barbara in Hong Kong. They then moved to the States in 1969. They had two sons and three grandchildren. Ramirez broke into their home, found the bedroom, and shot Peter in his right temple as he slept, killing him instantly. He then slapped and tried to rape Barbara, but when she proved not to be passive enough, he shot her injuring her fatally, and left her to die. He ransacked the house and, using Barbara's lipstick, painted a pentagram and wrote Jack the Knife, a popular song at the time, on the bedroom wall. Peter and Barbara's son, David, found his parents dead the next morning. The following day, the mayor of San Francisco, Diane Feinstein, gave a news conference proclaiming that the Night Stalker was in San Francisco and decided to share that he wore size 11 and a half white avia shoes. Authorities couldn't believe their biggest clue in the case had just been exposed by Feinstein, who's still out there making decisions in Congress, by the way. That night, Ramirez walked out to the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge and threw his distinctive footwear over the side. He then decides to lay low for a while, watching the news closely for any other tips as to how best cover his tracks. August 23rd, 85. Richard takes the bus back to L.A. He doesn't head downtown, instead he rents a room in Chinatown, and for a little while just enjoys relaxing, reading, catching up on what all the papers are writing about him. On August 25th, after a few days acclimating, Richard steals a car and goes looking for a house to terrorize, but he can't find a good situation. People are too on edge, it seems. While creeping around a prospective residence, a 13-year-old kid, James Romero III, suddenly exits his home around midnight and heads out to the family camper to get a pillow he'd left in there as they just returned from a camping trip. He has no idea that the community is gripped by the fear the media has justifiably been spreading. Ramirez steps back into the shadows beside the house and watches the boy. James then hears something, and stands still a moment. There's plenty of wildlife out in these parts, and he soon decides it must have been something harmless out in the bushes. Still, he feels a little exposed out here, under the moon, and decides to head back into the house, through the garage. He flips on the garage light and his uneasiness disappears. He's distracted by his minibike and takes a moment to crouch by it and tinker with the repair he'd been messing with before the camping trip. 
It is then that he hears the distinctive crunch of a footstep outside of the garage wall. Somebody is walking alongside the house. What he's hearing, he knows, is the sound of a person attempting to quietly creep over gravel. The 13-year-old's hair stands on end. The Romero home has been the target of thieves before, and he's afraid he's about to be trapped in the garage with one. He realizes that whoever is out there have been watching him as he retrieved his pillow from the camper. Whoever is out there knows he's in the garage. James hears another carefully placed footstep and decides to make a break for it. He runs into the house and begins yelling for his parents to wake up. James looks out the living room window and sees a dark figure stride past it. His father is up and demanding to know what the racket's all about. His mother calls out from bed asking what's the matter. James yells at them that there's a prowler outside, then fearlessly runs back out through the garage and looks out to the street, where he sees the dark figure striding with purpose towards an orange Toyota hatchback. James runs out to the street as the man starts the vehicle and pulls a slow and wide U-turn. James is on the street now, and Ramirez passes by. He glares at the kid, causing him to jump, then shows his rotting, aching teeth and speeds away. James manages to memorize a large portion of the plate number, 482T, and soon shares this information with a disinterested 911 operator. The next morning, James is awoken by pounding on the front door. Authorities are now extremely interested in what the 13-year-old can tell them about the Prowler, a man they now have reason to believe was the Night Stalker, as he had struck again last night, likely just after James had sounded the alarm at the Romero home. Ramirez speeds away from the surprising little boy, chuckling to himself of just how brave the kid did not yet know himself to be. He'll have to ditch the vehicle now. An orange hatchback isn't the most conspicuous vehicle. But first, he needs a fix. Bill Carnes, 29, and Carol Smith, 27, were engaged and living together, 76 miles south of Los Angeles, and the farthest south Ramirez would ever venture. Ramirez, on a mission to strike before the sun rose, broke into the quiet home, found the main bedroom, and without ceremony, shot Bill in the head three times as he slept. Then he announced to Carol that he was the Night Stalker and ordered her to say she loves Satan as he punched her in the face. He then hogtied her and threw her on the floor, turning the place over looking for money. He then dragged Carol to another room to rape and sodomize her. Before he left, he ordered her to tell the police that he was the Night Stalker and had struck again. Then he fled, dumped the stolen car in a shopping mall in North L.A., wiped his prints off of everything, missing all but one on the outside of the rearview window. He considers bringing with him the two Bibles in the back seat to burn later, which were the property of the vehicle owner, who was a pastor. Bill Carnes and Carol Smith were taken to hospital, where Bill underwent brain surgery to remove two of the three slugs in his brain. Miraculously, he survived his injuries. On August 28th, police find the car young James Romero, 13 years old, had sighted, abandoned in the shopping mall. They stake it out for a day in case the stalker returns. When that doesn't happen, they go in for prints, and when they are about ready to give up, find the one on the outside of the rearview mirror. It is soon matched to that of a blossoming suspect, a one Richard Ramirez, of whom they have prints on file from a six-month stint he served in prison for attempted car theft. Police in San Francisco attempt to track Richard down using his pals and fences. They soon discover the suspect is a two-bit criminal loser and huge ACDC fan, who won't shut up about Satan. They also hear that many in the criminal underground have had feelings that Richie was a night stalker for some time. Police decide to release Ramirez's mugshot to the media. The next morning, his face is on the cover of every newspaper in California. August 30, 1985. 
Feeling the heat, Ramirez boards a Greyhound bus to Tucson, Arizona, where his brother Robert lived with his wife and two kids. From the bus station, Richard called Robert, but he was not home. Only his wife was. Robert and Richard's relationship, just like that with the oldest sibling, Reuben, had some tension over Richard hitting on his wife. So he didn't want to be alone with her. He waited and called again, but his brother was still not home. This is when Richard saw policemen coming into the bus station. This made him nervous, so he bought a ticket back to L.A. and jumped on the bus. August 31, 1985. The bus gets to L.A. at 7.45 a.m. The Greyhound Terminal is full of cops, but they expected Richard to leave L.A., not come back to it. Once he got out of the station, however, people start recognizing him. He runs away and gets on a bus, but soon finds that he's like a hen in a wolf den. He manages to scurry out before he can be ripped to shreds and is now frantically searching for a car to steal. This was not a neighborhood Ramirez knew very well, and he scrambled to find a place to hide. On the corner of Whittier in Indiana, he spots a woman sitting in a running car. He attempts to carjack her. She yells out, and three men, Carmelo Robles, Arthur Benavides, and Frank Marino, start chasing the panicked killer. It was as if the daylight were making up for the sins of the night. Ramirez seemed to have a spotlight on him. Every single person he passed looked directly at him, then began to yell and point. He jumps over a fence and sprints through backyards, but his followers know the neighborhood better than he, and they head him off at the next block. Meanwhile, a whole host of neighbors start calling police and reporting him in, and as a result, police are swarming to the scene. Ramirez can hear the sirens. He flees through a backyard where Luis Munoz was cooking barbecue. When he couldn't explain what he was doing in the yard, Munoz beat him with a metal spatula until he ran away. Finally, Ramirez drags Angela De La Torre from her car and gets beaten badly by her husband, Manuel, and her neighbor, Jose, and his two adult sons. Manuel recognizes Ramirez from the circulated mugshot and smashes him over the head twice with the metal rod he was using to secure the front door in anticipation of the Night Stalker coming to his neighborhood. One of those hits land while Ramirez is running away and it splits his head wide open. Ramirez is stumbling through the neighborhood now in a panic daze. Citizens descend upon the stalker and collectively beat the living shit out of him. The pent-up anxiety and rage of the state of California raining down upon Ramirez in a ferocious torrent. He's going to die. Police arrive and find what can only be described as a lynching in progress. They rescue Ramirez and he growls for them to just shoot him. He's covered in blood and hauled into a cruiser. His face is swollen shut. He's muttering about how his, quote, own people had stopped him. This is Boyle Heights, a neighborhood with a demographic of nearly 100% Hispanics. They have no mercy on the Night Stalker, a man who they see not as a brother, but as a monster, and they let him know so as the cruiser barely makes it out of the neighborhood without its quarry being torn from the vehicle and finished off the same way he had taken some of his victims out of this world, with unmerciful kicks and punches. It is unfortunate that he didn't go this way, for if he had, the one thing he wanted most from this whole mess would never have come to be. The status of a rock star. Ramirez is shy and quiet in his first court appearance. Only after he begins getting fan mail in jail does he start to play to the cameras, confidently entering the courtroom with his hair and black sunglasses, flashing satanic symbols whenever he gets a chance, showing off a pentagram drawn on his palm, rocking in his chair as the proceedings drag on, leering at the victim's families, flirting with the groupies who attend the trial of Richard Ramirez in large numbers. They fight to get into the courtroom, as only so many are allowed in. There are, of course, many family members who want to see justice served for their loved ones. Still, these dolled-up morons fill rows, making up a section of support based not on belief of his innocence. They are there simply because they think Ramirez is hot. It's a joke. 
Even Ramirez himself says so. He's like the bad boy in class who everyone, including the teachers, is afraid to confront. He hires the worst lawyers he can find, maybe an intentional move to later justify never-ending appeals on the basis of not having competent defenders. After an eight-month trial, he's convicted on all 13 counts of murder he's tied to, but is never executed. He spends his time communicating with women, getting married, doing interviews, of course. Everyone wants a piece of Ramirez. He's a celebrity, and admittedly fascinating, though obviously trying too hard to play the part of cerebral bad boy. Talk show hosts and plastic journalists line up to get a piece of him, wanting their chance to appear brave on camera in front of the killer, though his hands are shackled to his feet. It's horrendous. Ramirez doesn't fail to dance for them, and as a byproduct gets his half-baked message out there to the mouth-breathers who adore him. I'll end with a clip from his interview with Mike Watkiss, who manages to annoy Ramirez enough with his hard-hitting bullshit demeanor to get a response that feels straight from Ramirez's black heart. The Night Stalker would spend 23 years on death row before dying of B-cell lymphoma at the age of 53. Witnesses to his death say he turned bright green, the color of a highlighter before he passed, staying on brand with the habit of always being incapable of suppressing his true colors. The Satanist admits to being evil. Do you admit to being evil, Richard? We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? I'm asking you the questions, my friend. (laughs) Yes, I am evil. Not 100%, but I am evil. Evil has always existed. The perfect world most people seek shall never come to pass. And it's going to get worse. (sighs) The great epochs of our life is when we gain the courage to rebaptize our e- evil qualities as being our best qualities. Mm-hmm.